0: Hi, welcome to Music Made Me, the TuneCore podcast. I'm Erin Frankenheimer, and I'm going to be your host on today's episode. Today, we're talking about how to successfully manage your career outside of a metro area. Here to help us tackle this topic is musician, frontman, record label owner, philanthropist, and Louisiana cultural advocate, Louis Michaud. Louis plays fiddle in and fronts the band Lost Bayou Ramblers. He lives in Arneville, Louisiana, a town that sits between Lafayette and Opelousas to the east, with a population just over 1,000. Louis owns and operates his own record label, Nouveau Electric Records. He is the frontman for Lost Bayou Ramblers and his most recent project, Misho's Melody Makers. His band, Lost Bayou Ramblers, took home Best Regional Roots Album last year at the 2018 Grammy Awards. Hi, Louis. Thank you so much for being here with us today.
1: Glad to join you, Aaron.
0: So let's dive in. Can you please start by telling us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, and where you live now?
1: Yeah, uh, I was raised in Lafayette, uh, kind of in Broussard, part of Lafayette, and, uh, you know, spent most of my time around there. And I started traveling and playing music a lot more when I became a teenager. Uh, I learned French at the age of 18. And uh, I learned up in eastern Canada. I went to immersion program up at University of St. Anne, where a lot of people of my generation have gone to learn French because it's really hard to learn in Louisiana. There's none of the people to to really become fluent just by learning through speaking in Louisiana. So I did that and I brought my fiddle with me and I went hitchhiking around Eastern Canada for like two months after that. And that's where I really honed, you know, my French and my ability to kind of play fiddle by myself and hold a rhythm and sing and play at the same time and all that. And, And I basically, you know, basically lived in Lafayette My entire life until I moved uh, to—I had a small stint in New Orleans uh, in, like, 2002, just for, like, six months. And then I found some land uh, near Arneville in a place called Prairie De Farm, and I've been living out here since 2006.
0: And speaking to— you making that journey up to learn how to speak French, Um, it's important to note that you aren't making pop or mainstream music, yet you've managed to reach a huge audience outside of Louisiana, taking home a Grammy just last year. Please elaborate for our listeners out there who may not be familiar about the kind of music that you play.
1: Yeah, well, uh, my brother and I started Lost Bayou Ramblers in 1999, my brother Andre, and it's a Cajun band. We play Cajun music. we learned playing with our family band Les Frères Michaux, who they started when we were just kids. They started like in eighty-three or eighty-four. So we grew up with that always around the house and always going to festivals and restaurants and wherever they'd be playing. And uh, we eventually joined the band as teenagers and then we start our own band. And yeah, it's and you know, it's been twenty years that we've had this band and it's a French. We play, you know, fiddle and accordion to the main instruments. And, uh, you know, it's it's interesting because there's not a a lot of there's not a huge population that understands the language per se. There's a lot of people that do speak Cajun and Creole French and there's a lot of people that speak French, but a lot of our generation don't speak French. And they, you know, so we're singing. we're, We're singing in French. We're playing in French. And people want to learn French, but like I said, it's not very easy. But I feel like through the music, people are able to connect to the language.
0: And you've been playing music in your region since you were very young, as you just said. Um, can you tell us about those early experiences and what they taught you as a musician, and how you've carried those lessons into the impressive, award-winning career that you have today?
1: Yeah, well, learning with learning to play with Le Frami show was a very, a very interesting, uh, you know, trial. What they call what we call it on the job training because you know we never practice like Le Frémis, never, I've never seen Le Ferevilles show practice in their almost forty years, and uh, you know you really you learn by playing, and it's a traditional music. So you're listening, you're feeling out the chords, you're learning by watching. There's no instructions, there's no sheet music. It's all by ear, and when you really get in the groove with Cajun music like especially with Le you show, it just becomes this very powerful, this very powerful machine or this like spiritual force that is so full of rhythm that you get entranced in the rhythm yourself while you're playing. And I think that's the, that's the most beautiful moment is when the music's kind of carrying you and you've opened your body and your mind up enough to it to let it just roll like that. And, uh, you know, we all learned on triangle... Before we played an instrument, my main instrument was stand-up bass, what the Show still is. But playing triangle was really kind of the initiator for the rhythm, and that rhythm is what we carried into Lost By Ramblers. And you know, playing playing the triangle, and it's the most simple instrument. You have a baton. Once I show you, you have a baton, and you have a triangle, and so you know, it's just it's just two pieces of metal banging back and forth and to get, to get that into, you know, to lock that into a rhythm is a very special thing because, you know, as the simpler, the simpler the instrument, the harder it is to make it dynamic and to make it really fit in the music without it getting old, without it just getting repetitive. And once you lock into that triangle rhythm, it's almost like you're riding a horse and it's just like, you're just letting the horse run, you know, and you're, or gallop or whatever. And, uh, so that's definitely the what we carried into Lost Bayou Ramblers was that that trance dance rhythm, you know that we learned <laughs> in a, in Lefranc's show, and since we started the band, you know, throughout all of our changes and throughout all of our um, you know uh, experimentations and our just everything, everything that we've that we've brought to our own musical growth and everything, we've always kept the rhythm. And that's, you know, that's definitely very apparent in Kalenda, the the album that we won the Grammy on, you know, more so, I'd say more so than ever, like we just kept on focusing on the roots of the music and letting, letting the rest grow as it will and not trying to hold back, you know, how, in which way we want to grow, in which way we want to experiment and try to, you know, please ourselves artistically, so as as long as we focused on the rhythm and the you know, the the core fiddle accordion and triangle, I think that that's really what uh what's allowed us to continue to grow while still staying rooted.
0: And do you bring that to Michelle melody makers as well?
1: Yeah, in a different in a different sense. Um you know, we it's funny that you mentioned that because I haven't thought about it. You always learn so much doing interviews. <laughs> uh I haven't thought about it, but You know, it's definitely from the same vein. Um, You know, Michaud's Melody Makers is more of a fiddle band. And there's a lot of depth when I say that because, you know, the fiddle was actually the original Cajun instrument in the sense that people have had violins and fiddles for so long. I'm not sure exactly how long, but violins have been around for a very long time and it was the most readily available instrument, and it was the instrument that you know French people and Acadians and Creoles and all that. That's how. That's the instrument that our music was passed down on. When we didn't have fiddles, it was done by uh, musique à bouche. When you sing the music, or when you even sing the melodies they do it in Quebec a lot there's a few recordings of people down here doing it but usually we just let the instruments do the talking so Michel's Melody Makers is based on you know kind of an even older version of Cajun music that was pre-accordion and the accordion came within the last hundred or so years give or take and became super popular and it dominated the music and uh, just, just really gave it that funk and that, that certain rhythm that we associate with Cajun music now is from the accordion. But before that, there was the same rhythms. There was waltzes. There was Mazurkas. There was Valse de temps, There was contredances and all these different dance, these dance rhythms, and most of them were played on the fiddle. So Michel's Melody Makers does do similar to what the Lost By Ramblers does where it melds tradition and experimentation, but it also bases, it also uh, reaches possibly even further back for inspiration to these old fiddle tunes that were, you know, using even different scales and such that because the accordion has a limited scale because it's diatonic, a melodeon, and they don't have all 12 notes on the accordion. So it, it's very similar, but it's also, it's another, it's another expression and, uh, and then at the same time as reaching further back, it also reaches to a, a different period in Cajun music when the accordion became less popular around World War, World War II, before World War II, and people were playing more uh, kind of were in, were melding more like jazz and uh, swing and stuff into Cajun music. So there was a there was a time when. You know, fiddle became the the main instrument again, like Harry Schultz and Leo Swallow and the Hackberry Ramblers, all who were very, like, very influential. Leo Swallow had the first drum set in, uh used the first drums in Cajun music, which also qualifies as the first drums in country music. Before um, Bob Wills and before country music ever had drums, Leo Swallow was the first one. And I think it was a guy from from New Orleans, you know, that, that had been playing in New Orleans with possibly the jazz bands and uh, big bands and swing bands. And he brought that rhythm into Cajun into music with the, with the fiddle as the lead. And it was kind of getting more into the popular music at the time. So, you know, it's 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 another... The, the other thing about Cajun music is it's actually very multifaceted and there's a lot of diversity within Cajun music. And that's, you know, that's what Kalenda was focused on. And Misho's Melody Makers is focused on that in a whole nother realm. You know, there's so much there's so much beauty out there and so many old recordings that have you just say, wow, they had so many different variations and types of music and dances. So I'm trying to tap into those with these shows Melody Makers while still appealing to ourselves as a modern as modern artists and modern uh, audiences.
0: I really appreciate you highlighting all of that and I mean talking about influences and coming from you know before World War II and things like that, it just highlights that not only are you not sitting in New York City or Los Angeles or Nashville, these big music hubs, you're not playing uh, top 40 radio music. So you know, that being said, although you're not in a city or a major metro area, you've had a very successful career at a national level. What advice would you give to folks listening that are living in towns that have no music industry?
1: Cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I, probably the same advice I'd give to anyone, you know, um, where I think, I think being an artist and being a musician involves a certain amount of idealism and uh, a certain amount of, uh, kind of wonder and, uh, aspiration that doesn't come nearly as easy as it seems, you know, and, uh you know, whether you live in a big city or in the country, but especially if you live in the country where there aren't these organizations you can join, and there's not like many open mic nights and things that you can become a part of, and there's not as big of a community to kind of work with. I really think it's all about, first of all, playing for yourself and doing what you love and not trying to play for what you think people want here, but doing what you love. And then being honest about it and, you know, truly honoring what you want to do and not censoring yourself. You know, when you write a song, you let it be. If you really want to change it, change it. But I think artists, especially music writers and writers in general, have a, you know, that's one of the biggest learning curves is is allowing yourself to write and not trying to second-guess yourself so much. And, And then, of course, the main part is being courageous enough to just go play smaller gigs, you know, and, uh, and whether it be just small gigs in your little town or the nearest town to you, and then trying to branch that out. And, you know, it, it really, I think it really involves so much groundwork and so much humble, uh, humble, just, yeah, it just requires a lot of humble sweat, sweat work in the sense that, you know, you have to go and play, you have to go to play to audiences aren't always <laughs> the best or big, or They might not even seem interested, but, you know, usually you find that even if you're so scared of the situation, when you start by the time you end a song, people are going to be clapping and people are going to be happy. Even if you think they weren't even paying attention. And then from there, you know, we're very lucky. I think what really, you know, South Louisiana, I think is, um, is a world apart from the rest of rural America because we have our own music economy. You know, New Orleans itself, obviously, is it's you could you could make a full living as an artist and musician without even leaving the parish. But for us in um, Southwest Acadiana, Southwest Louisiana, Acadiana, um, you know, we have our own musical economy and we're lucky to be able to not leave the state. You know, like a lot of Zotico bands and Cajun bands and and not and bands that aren't in those genres as well are able to. Support themselves and make a full-time living just within the state. Uh, New Orleans still becomes a big part of that, so it's important to recognize when you do have a big metro area near you. You know, I drive to New Orleans a lot more than I drive to Lafayette, which is you know, Lafayette's thirty minutes away, and New Orleans is two and a half hours away. And I drive to Orleans a lot, a lot more often than I do to Lafayette, and uh, that's really a big, a big part of. What, what's made me be able to be successful but uh, even then beyond that just playing in my area and developing an audience within my area by playing and that's that's one of the main advices is you know the more you can play in as many different places around where you live the more you'll gain an audience that will follow you around and that's I mean I don't think there's much you can say about that I mean I think that's really tried and true I don't believe in oversaturating the market you know I think that the touring model of having to go and play each market every four months or every six months isn't always, um, it's not always that easy unless you're a huge act. And most of us aren't huge acts. So I think, you know, really focusing in your region is the most important thing.
0: And. You know your region is unique, as you just highlighted. Um, but can you share with us what role music plays in the lives of those around you and how important it is to you? Which I think you've said, but to stay true to your roots.
1: Yeah, you know, the Cajun and Creole cultures, we associate so much with our music more than anything, more than the food, more than the language. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's hard, hard to say more than food because your food's in your life every day, and it's who who you are, but you know, the music really gives people so much, so much pride and so much to look forward to in daily life. And, um, that's what the music is for, is to help people de-stress and to help keep people happy, you know, mentally and physically. And, and uh, you know, I, I think people really, really value the fact that our cultural music are still as alive as they are today. Um, you know, and it and it does it. it, it it's a transporter. It's a vehicle for the culture and for the language. It, uh, you know, I think it really gives people a big smile when they hear young people singing in French, especially you know so many of these people like around here. They grew up with all these dance halls around, and they some of them grew up going to bal de maisons like house dances, and that was a big part of of people's life growing up, and and they kind of saw it. Well, then there was the decline where you know it wasn't it wasn't acceptable to be speaking French in public, and it wasn't acceptable to teach your children to speak French, and there became this this kind of generation gap where people kind of had to let it go a bit, I think, and uh, and then the dance halls started closing, and there's only just a few dance halls left, and it gave way to modern venues, but. You know, so many old—I say, say old—people of, of previous generations that are still alive today. You know, they grew up with this music as a weekly part of their life. I mean, you could always count on there being a French band down the road every weekend, multiple times in a weekend. And now it's not as prevalent, but it's still hugely popular. And I think it really—it really just keeps people in touch with their culture and their pride.
0: And. You know, speaking of your community, you do a lot for your community and your region. Your fundraising efforts during the BP oil spill, for example. How important is it, in your opinion, for an artist to contribute to their local community? How much do you think that plays a role in the success of a musician? Um, not to say that you're doing those things to further your own career, but it must help you connect with those around you, um, which is important when you're not in a big city.
1: Yeah, I think it's. I think it's usually important because. You know, I think as musicians, we're almost <laughs> we're almost on the receiving end of philanthropy. I mean, you know, it, it's it's uh, it's not a necessity. One could argue that music is not a necessity. I would argue that it is. But you know, I think people come and support music out of a greater love for you know for their own culture their own environment and their own social their own social environment and as artists you know i think we're the we're often the ones who bring light to situations and it can help uh get the word out about situations like the bp oil spill i mean gosh that was just the most heart-wrenching thing to wake up to every morning and you know to watch watch the news and see the oil just continually gushing out in the deteriorating and a deteriorating ecosystem at the time, especially. And, um, you know, musicians really play a huge part in, in getting the word out, bringing awareness. And, you know, we're, I think we've pulled a lot of inspiration from, from nature, from our environment. And we also pull out inspiration from catastrophes and situations that need our help, whether it be, you know, food kitchens like, I mean, Cardi B, for example, with the whole government shutdown thing. I mean, I think that's beautiful. I hear people say, oh, shit, she doesn't have any, any right to be talking about politics. Yeah, that's her world. She's an artist. She's here to express her world, you know. And um, I think that's that's a, a huge role of musicians is to be the expressors of our generation and of our culture. Um, you know, Lefran Michaud actually always played a lot of fundraisers as well for different... All day, and we, we played a lot of free gigs growing up for a lot of different causes. And, uh, you know, some of the, some of our, some of my favorite gigs have been free fundraiser gigs. One time at Le Abbey Show, we went and played in a prison. One time we went and played in a, uh, a, uh, like a school for the mentally handicapped. And it's just those people appreciated the music more than I've seen any audience appreciate it because, you know, they're kind of, cornered out of society and you know just have to live these more mundane lives because they're special needs or because they're incarcerated and gosh the music touches those people so much so much more and like you know it, there's really um i think there's a lot of a lot of joy and a lot of value in sharing your music and sharing your art with uh, with people that need it and with causes that need it
0: That was a beautiful answer. I I didn't expect to hear Cardi B come out of your mouth, um, which I love. And um, no, I think that's a a wonderful picture you're painting of, you know, how that that work doesn't only, you know, feed you and give you good, um, I guess, eyes in the community that you're you're playing these shows and you're doing things to make things uh, to better your environment. But it also is giving you something um, as a musician and an artist. And so I hate to oh, switch absolutely. back to the business side of things after that, that beautiful answer, but, you know, you've, you've made a lot of stuff work um, not being in the, the heart of a city. So let's talk about that Grammy win. Um, people may not realize that you have to submit just a simple thing, but you have to submit to be considered for a Grammy. So you don't just they don't call you and say, hey, we think your record's great. Um, even if you're a major artist and I'm going to insert like Cardi B, um, you know, you, you still have to have somebody send the music in. So, you know, for you, how do you guys stay on top of um, your business and aware of all of the opportunities out there? I mean, how do you keep yourself informed?
1: Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a big question. I mean, I think that's, you know, that is definitely the other half of succeeding as a musician and which is why a lot of musicians do need managers, you know? Because as the artistic type, you don't always have, you know, the, the headspace or the ability, you know, managing your own career or even having a manager for you. You know, if you're if you're able to have a manager, that can be helpful. It can also be frustrating. Uh, if you have a really good one who believes you in you and works with you and keeps you on point, that's great. But most man, most musicians have to manage themselves. And I think that's just as important as the art, which is... You know, partially un- unfortunate because it requires you to spend a lot of time thinking about mundane tasks rather than making art. But at the same time, you know, it all comes out of necessity. And you know, that's the way I look at it: is that it all comes out of necessity. You know, if if you're relying on your next gig or your album sales <laughs> to you know to feed you or to feed your family, then you're uh, you know then you're then it's a lot more essential that you stay on top of things. Um, applications for festivals, you know, uh, like you said, submitting to the Grammys and to awards and such. And, uh, you know, but but it's funny because when we won, when we were nominated and we won for Kalinda, it was a huge surprise because, you know, as we did submit, but we... Didn't politic at all, and I know that as I've learned over the years, that's a big part of Grammys and any awards uh, and anything in life. Obviously, any business, a lot of politicking involved. But we submitted the album, and then we just let it be. And then when it got nominated, it was it was a huge shock. And then when we won, it was even a bigger shock because we didn't ask one person to vote for us or make them aware of our album. You know, we just try to focus on the art as much as we can. And, you know, we're a self-managed, self-booking band. I do the managing and the booking for both bands.
0: I had no idea. For Lost
1: Byramers. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's that, that does come as a shock to a lot of people because of our success and because we won a Grammy and all that. But, you know, at the same time, we also have taken the slow approach where this is our 20th year and – I think the more the more we go and the more experience we get the more we realize that we have to do it for ourselves and you know do what makes us happy and not not do not try to fit ourselves into the business, music business mold. And I think that's really important for every artist is to really find what works for them and follow that. You know, we've had band members and managers and stuff in the past be like, "Oh, well you got to do this, you got to go hit these markets and then And you got to go back and then you got to, you know, do all these things that play this showcase and that. And, and we noticed over the years that a lot of those things didn't really help us as much as, you know, going play New Orleans on a Saturday night. You know, It's like, we're so lucky to live next to New Orleans because in New Orleans, the world comes to you where, you know, French Quarter Fest, for example, you play a French Quarter Fest. And then over the next few years, as you do, as we do travel going, you know, here and there to different cities across the country, people are like, oh, I saw you at French Quarter Fest. I saw you at French Quarter Fest. And, you know, you, you got you to gotta just really pay attention to what works for you as an artist and really follow that. Um, m- managing and booking, for example, we've had managers and bookers. Yeah,
0: Tell us about that. I'd love to know how you manage, yeah. how, like what's, what's your day to day? So you are in two bands. You are, uh, you have a record label. You got three kids. Um, you have a lot on your plate. Like what's your, and, how do you, how do you yeah. time? Like how, what's your time management? Like when do you sit down and go, okay, today I'm booking for this today. I'm going to focus on the label.
1: Yeah. Well, no, that, that's all great questions. Uh, I don't know how, uh, I, I kind of just do it as, as needed, I guess. And, uh, I have more than two bands, by the way. <laughs> How many? But uh, well, let's see. I have Lost By Ramblers, Misha's Melody Makers, Soul Creole. We have Vermillionaires, which is Andre and I as a duo or as a dance hall band. And Andre's your brother. Yep, yep. Who founded Lost By Ramblers with me? Uh, we're both in Le show Uh There's a few other ones out there, but that's you know <laughs> that's the main five. Okay. Um, but but yeah, I think you know. Each, each day is just, like I said, just comes out of necessity. And it's like, well, and, and one thing I've noticed, you know, well, I'll, I'll, I'll start with this, that we, of course, we start, like any artist, booking and managing ourselves. And uh, I've had different bandmates that have helped me with it over the year. Andre, Andre does, you know, part of the managing as well. And he does, you know, the kind of the, more of the tour managing and accounting and stuff. And I do more of the managing and booking and so he and I run the business uh, together. And, uh, you know, it's, it's great for us because we have full control over our tour schedule. We have full control over the little things, you know, which it, it has its ups and downs because you have to manage it. But at the same time, you get to choose exactly how it's going to be. Um, but that said, we've tried managing bookers. But I think that for any South Louisiana band or any band that, you know, pl- plays – as part of a specific culture or society, it's important that the managers and bookers understand the society and culture they're part of and how their music fits in to their, their culture. Um, You know, we've, we've had managers and bookers, but they didn't always exactly get how our business works, you know? And like I said, we're lucky to be able to play so much in South Louisiana. And when you try to fit a, cultural band into the music business mold it doesn't always fit and we ended up spinning our wheels a lot doing tours in places that didn't really make sense and uh you know and then and I do believe that there's I know that there's great managers and great bookers I've seen them do wonders for my friends you know for for other artists that I have major respect for and I know they probably couldn't do it without them um and you know we might we might get there one day if it happens naturally, but I think that's, I think that's really where it is, is you have to do what, what's natural. And, uh, and to us, it, it comes naturally for us to book ourselves because I think we're probably fortunate in the sense where we've done soliciting in the past, but mostly we just answer the phone, you know, and, uh, and that comes in waves, you know, and so like going back to my day to day, it's like one day, you know, one day I'll be doing nothing but booking, just fielding emails and calls. And then the next day there won't be any booking or like the next week, you know, it comes in waves. And I've noticed that, you know, promoters and festivals and stuff, they'll just all hit you up on the same day. It's like they all have the same deadline or got the same itch or urge to book. And then they kind of let off for a few. So then in the meantime, that's when I do the label stuff or then, you know, we we work on, album things, you know, it's just always, there's always too much to do. That's for sure. But, uh, you know, it's, it it is an interesting, an interesting, uh, job trying to keep it all going at the same time, but it it happens naturally. You know, um,
0: I think the biggest thing you said there was you answer the phone. I think that's something that, and I think, and maybe it's not the phone. We have a lot of, uh, people who are probably listening that are, You know, sitting at home with their home studio, maybe they've never played a live gig before, but it's um, getting out there and and doing the work. And sometimes, you know, it's that that quote that, you know, 80% of success is showing up. Um, You know, the ability ability to actually just follow through and and do what you say you're going to do and to answer somebody's phone call or answer the email or do the mundane day-to-day tasks to just get through that to-do list. That's um, a huge part of it, and I mean, a lot of people in general struggle to do that. But artists, especially, as you noted, it, that that stuff can bog you down when you're trying to be creative. So the ability to balance that—that's um, uh, necessary and um, not always the easiest line to walk. So,
1: no, you're absolutely right, and it and it definitely uh, when it gets really real is when you're trying to perform, and then you're still trying to deal with these tasks, whether it be like tour managing or you know things that like you wish someone else was there to do for you in a club, like go put one last person on the guest list or go find where the merch is supposed to set up and all that. But, but we've learned to kind of, we've learned to delegate a bit and we have, you know, one of our band members handles the merch and the Facebook and is compensated for it. And, uh, you know, we have different people that help with little different things. But for the most part, it's all internal. We deal with everything ourselves. And, uh, you know, if it works that you do it yourself, keep doing it. If someone else does a better job, let them do it. But you don't have to be like, oh, I have to have a manager to be successful. That's, you know, that's not at all the case.
0: Yeah. And I think there's probably a lot of um, trial, you know, learning by trial by error, figuring out what you need to know. And when you manage yourself, you have to deal with all facets of the business, whether it's your PR, or as you said, managing your social media, uh, dealing with the merch, doing settlement at the end of a show. So it gives you the opportunity to get in there and start to learn that that side of the business and to decide if, hey, man, I really don't want to do this stuff, so I should give it to somebody else. Yeah,
1: exactly. Well,
0: I really appreciate you being here and um, sharing all of this wonderful information with us, but I'd love to end on an anecdote. We are currently sitting in uh, Wix Mix Studios here in New Orleans, Louisiana, and uh, this studio is owned by your uh, bandmate, Eric Heigel, and he told me I should ask you about uh, the the blood moon story, how the blood moon that that night affected the album.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, um, yeah. So, you know, we've uh, started melody makers four years ago and just kind of been real improv about it, having different musicians, different situations, doing it all live on stage, no rehearsing. And we finally decided, you know, finally started getting a kind of a group together and we were playing a residency at the Saturn bar and said hey let's let's try to make let's try to make a record this month because it's time we've been playing a lot we're, we're getting our getting our songs together and they're feeling good so we went and recorded Duckside. and uh eric's cousin corey Ritchie, who you know produced kalenda and mammoth waltz uh happened to be in town and he took on he took on the project we had basically 36 hours to make the whole album uh so we got right to work i mean we we recorded all eight songs, all overdubs, and everything in th- within those 36 hours, including sleep. We didn't just stay up. but you know, We started one morning into the next night, and we worked hard. I mean, you know, I think this was Kirkland's first full-length album playing drums on. Uh, you know, he's 22, almost half my age, and uh, <laughs> and uh, we worked really hard for those two days. And finally, the last song was a ripper. It was like, it got faster and faster and faster. We had to do like five takes of it. So we did them. We finally got it. Yes, we finished the album. Uh, Now, Corey was was reamping things in the room. Like, hey, well, we did it. I'm going to go start tearing down. We had a drink, celebrate, finishing the album. All right, cool. So I went to, I got my rice cooker. I was cooking. I'm also, I also cook for the band. (laughs) I was cooking for, you know, for the session. And I went and got my rice cooker, went and put it in the truck, and I just jumped out the back of my truck, and boom, my ankle twisted under me, and I heard it. It sounded like a hundred rubber bands popping, and uh, I think I heard it in my head, or maybe I heard it out. I don't know where I heard it, but I heard it. <laughs> and uh, and I was on the floor, like, okay, am I all right? Am I am I broken? Just sprained my ankle? I think I. And then Brian walked outside and he saw me on the ground, like, dude, what's the matter? Uh, Dude, I think I just, I think I just really messed up my ankle. (laughs) So he kind of helped me hobble in the, in the, in the studio. Corey's still reamping at this point, kind of jumps up. What's going on? Kirkland runs to the other house to get me some ice to put on my ankle. You know, they're all taking care of me, being great friends. And they get me, okay, we're we're sat up. Okay, I got ice on my thing. Still reamping, still working on the album. Louis injured. What's going to become of it? We have our last gig of the residency in two days. I might have to cancel that. So Kirkland comes back, and all of a sudden he looks at us. He's like, y'all, I'm not feeling very good. Corey goes, and I'm sitting there with my leg propped up with ice. Corey goes, sit down in this chair. He sits down in the chair and proceeds to have a – I would, what I'd like to call a mild um, abnormal seizure in the ones he's not epileptic. He doesn't, uh, no. not part of his history or nothing like that. And we're all just sitting with him right through it. And just like, is he breathing, you know? And he comes back out of it and he said, okay, I'm back. I'm back. He wants to, and a friend was miles there. You want to call the ambulance? Yeah, call the ambulance. They came over, they come in, there's bottles of beer everywhere. There's haze in the air there. My, le- my legs propped up on ice and, uh, he's like, what is going on? And so, so it was quite the ending of an amazing session. It was really an amazing session. And then it just went out with a bang, but luckily we finished the whole album. Uh, we were out of commission for quite a few days after that Kirkland checked out fine. No abnormalities. We think that he just, like I say, never recorded a full album. He probably was dehydrated. Uh, I was on crutches for six weeks after that and was still touring with the Ramblers and went to Portland the next weekend. It was a very interesting. So when I told people about the story, uh, people say, yeah, it was the Blood Moon. I said, oh, it was the Blood Moon, okay. So, So we decided to call our album Blood Moon, just kind of in honor of these supernatural forces that for one, gave the music extra vigor and for two, knocked us right down after. (laughs)
0: <laughs> so, wow and uh we just had a blood moon uh last week did you you made it through that one okay though
1: yeah we uh yeah i was much more aware of it this time the <laughs> super blood wolf moon eclipse yeah and i got to enjoy it and i wasn't you know wasn't wasn't in the studio with headphones on i was outside watching the eclipse it was beautiful and kind of a great full circle too because we had four gigs last weekend telemaker's makers gigs last weekend. We made it through all and then we got to enjoy the blood moon, you know, (laughs) the fruits, the fruits of our labor and the cycles of living to see another moon.
0: Well, thank you for sharing that story. That was uh, that sounds (laughs) super intense. And, um, you know, speaking of Michelle's Melody Makers, would you mind letting people know, um, you know, they can check out your music um, online for Lost by Ramblers, Michelle's Melody Makers. Anything else you want to share with people, any upcoming shows or
1: yeah, um, <clears throat> we're doing a special show February 8th at the Saturn Bar. We started Residency. We chose Melody Makers, and we're also doing a special performance of The Stoned, which is the first full-length uh, release by Nouveau Electric, which was uh, recorded and performed at John Zorn's venue in the Lower East Side of Manhattan in 2016. It was a 45-minute all-improv one long set of 45 minutes featuring Spider Stacy, Johnny Campos, Brian Weber, Kirkland Middleton, Jeff Tobias and Jason Rivera and myself. And we put it out on LP and we're doing a release party at the Saturn Bar on February 8th.
0: Thank you so much. Uh, appreciate oh, no. you being here with us today. No, that was great. Really. Thank you so much appreciate awesome.
1: it. Oh, thank you, Aaron. It was a, ple- it was a pleasure. It's uh, I like the interesting rural perspective, and that's definitely not something that's focused on every day, so it's cool to be a part of.
0: If you want to learn more about how to help your music career, go to TuneCore.com and check out our artist services page. Please don't forget to subscribe to Music Made Me. Rate us on iTunes and follow us on social media at TuneCore.